Pastor Ed Taylor says false teachers will be dealt with by God one day. When someone is not teaching true, they're teaching false, they need to be spoken to with the truth. And they're to be admonished. And they're to be admonished a second time. And perhaps even a third time. But as they're divisive, the Bible says we're just to move on. Move on. Don't allow false teaching to continue in your midst. And we're reminded in Jude here that God will faithfully bring his righteous judgment upon false teachers and ultimately upon all who reject him. This is amazing grace. This is It's time once again for Abounding Grace. We're knee-deep in our study of Jude, and Pastor Ed Taylor will cover verses 12 through 19 today. It's a heavy section, to be sure, but oh so needed. You see, Jude is exposing false teachers who are a threat to the faith and making it clear we need to contend for the faith. The reason for that, in part, is to make sure we're not deceived or influenced by them. And that's where today's lesson will prove to be very helpful. Take your Bibles, open them, would you? Jude chapter 1. There's only one chapter in Jude. We're going to pick up where we left off last time in verse 12. Uh, I was tempted to try to finish the whole chapter, but I do want to spend a whole study talking about and learning about keeping yourselves in the love of God. All this discussion about false teaching, today we'll learn about division, we'll see these strong words, and, and I didn't want to just gloss over this admonition to keep yourselves in the love of God, an appropriate encouragement. So that's why we have one more study. But today we want to talk about a Bible study that I've entitled, You Must Remember the Truth. You Must Remember the Truth. And as we're going verse by verse through the book of Jude, it's been so good for us. It does sound, as you'll see in a moment, very familiar uh, to what Peter wrote in his second letter. And Jude, remember, started out writing this letter with the heart to encourage the saints. He wanted to talk about the theme of salvation and encourage believers, knowing they're loved and they're saved. But somewhere in his mind, the Holy Spirit shifted his thinking and he shifted gears to give strong warning against those who wanted to destroy the church, those who wanted to destroy believers and hinder the work of the gospel throughout Jerusalem and beyond. And so we're learning there's that need to hold fast or to contend for the faith, to literally fight for the truth, to take a stand by making sure that you know the truth and that you're able to defend it when necessary, when the truth is under attack. The best way to deal with falsehoods is to know the truth. So pick up in verse 12. He describes these false teachers as spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Now you remember, hold your place here. Go back to 2 Peter chapter 2, just a few pages to the left. 
And you'll remember Peter used similar illustrations to describe the false teachers then. Notice verse 12, 2 Peter 2. It says, but these like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. And they'll receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who counted pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetousness, covetous practices, and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray. And he goes on to continue to describe them. Jude says something very similar. They're unacceptable in their defiled condition. They've dirtied every gathering they attend. Instead of adding love and peace and purity to these gatherings known as love feasts, they soiled them with their sinful speech and their false teaching. They were taking attention off of Jesus and bringing it on themselves. Now, by the way, this is perfect timing where we are in Jude because we've just begun to study Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47, where the apostles, they would gather together, Acts 2, 42, and they would continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in the breaking of bread, in fellowship, and in prayer. They would come together and they would gather together in homes and share a meal. That's what a love fest is. A love feast, I should say. A love feast in the first century was a gathering where it was like a church service. Uh, I guess the, the way, the closest thing that we could probably look at in a gathering like ours is when we have potlucks and everybody brings a meal. We all share together in common of the meal. We have a time of prayer. We have a time of song. That's what they would do regularly, especially because much of the early church was poor. So part of the, the way of ministering to one another was those that had more would bring together and the poor and those not so poor would be able to share a meal together and be able to gather together not only over food but in the Lord. Now, by the time you get to 1 Corinthians 11, they had begun to corrupt those meat gatherings and they were taking advantage of each other and they bring food but then people would break in line and you can read it, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But notice their description now of how he describes them, these spots. He says, first of all, these are spots in your love feasts. They feast with you without fear. Now, that without fear is truly a reference to without fear of the Lord. They don't have a recognition of God in their life. And certainly you have met people in our gathering, maybe in a small group, maybe in a little prayer meeting, where they're in there and it's just obvious they have no fear of God. They have no fear of the Lord. You can learn by their language. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the mouth, what? The heart speaks. And so you are able then, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's better. <laughs> Both ways it works. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when you listen to someone and you watch their demeanor, you can truly learn the revelation of their own heart, of who they are. Now, here's the thing about the person that you're listening to, they don't believe that. They don't believe that they give themselves away. They don't believe that they're identifying themselves a certain way. They don't believe because they're so convinced in who they are, what they're going through, what they're saying. They've so rehearsed it, many, so they don't even recognize anymore that this has defiled them. Isn't that what we learn in Hebrews? 
that bitterness deep down that takes a root in our lives defiles those around us? How, how can bitterness then defile those around us without first defiling ourselves? And they have no fear of God. They're in your group. They have no fear. They're, they're spots. They're, they're stains. In some translations, that this, is, this word was used to describe a hidden reef. Hidden and unknown, but very dangerous. And they have no fear. They serve only themselves. Then notice how they're described. First of all, they're described as clouds without water. Clouds without water speaks to us of disappointment. Disappointment. Clouds promise water, but when they don't deliver it, the farmer, again, you're speaking to an agrarian culture, the farmer is upset when the rains don't come. Disappointed. Apostates and false teachers look like leaders who are ready to serve, but when it comes down to it, they're selfish and self-centered. And let me tell you, that is always a disappointment. When you have high hopes for someone, when you lay hands on someone, when you've raised someone up and they've gotten that far and then finally they don't deliver. Not only do they not deliver, but they take advantage of the very people that you've entrusted to them. It's a very sad thing to experience. Especially when you think of, when you think of a pastor. I can speak for myself. I love this church. I'm committed to this church. My family's committed. We're committed to this community. And we can't do it alone. It's impossible. It's impossible to accomplish what God has called us to do alone. And so we do exactly what we've been discipled. The things that I've learned, I commit to faithful men as well so that they can teach it to them, commit it to them, faithful men and women, so they could teach others also. We watch the ministry as gifts are revealed, and then we're able then to deploy those gifts throughout. And I'm telling you, it's always a disappointment when someone doesn't love this church the way that I love this church. It's truly a disappointment. We, we trusted you. We wanted you to take care of them. We wanted you to step into their lives. We wanted you to wake up in the middle of the night and go to the hospital. We wanted you to serve. We wanted you not to complain. And it's always a disappointment. I, it's, there, it's never not a disappointment. Now, there's other emotions too. There's anger, frustration. But disappointment, it's sad. Like you said, and, and I'm speaking, if I'm looking at you right now, I'll look up. You said, no, then I'm like, I'm not looking at anyone particular, but like you said, you had a servant's heart. You said that God called you to do this. You said, and then even, we even watched you at times demonstrate. You know, the Bible says a deacon must be first proven or tested. So we've watched you. And then when it comes down, right down to it, you're like a cloud without water. Not only did you not, not only did you not respond with faithfulness, but, but you also hurt people along the way, confuse them, spread your nonsense or your opinions or wanted to take advantage of them instead of just giving them the word. It's disappointing. He says, these guys are disappointing. Besides all the other things he says, it's a disappointment to see false teachers and to experience them. Not only that, he says, verse 12, he says, they're carried about by the winds. So they're all over the place. <laughs> you know, they're, just, they're just floating around looking for someone that will listen to them, someone that will follow them. He, he says, without water, again, carried about by the winds. Notice, late autumns, autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. As Jude pulls no punches here, the picture is an orchard now. In the fall, the time when farmers are expecting fruit. And what do they find? Fruitless trees. 
not at all what was expected, and indeed a great pain. Jotted down in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Therefore, here's the key, verse 20, therefore by their fruits you will know them. And he uses a similar illustration. He says, look, they're like, they're like the late autumn trees where you're waiting for the fruit. You waited, waited, waited. You, you took care of them. You fertilized them. You got rid of the pests. And then they're without fruit and they're twice dead. Then he says in verse 13, they're raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. So now it, it speaks of their boastful, prideful, arrogant words compared to like the waves of sea. Look down at verse 16. It says, these are murmurers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people, to gain advantage. Perhaps Jude had in mind Isaiah 57 verse 20, but the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says God, for the wicked. Isn't that true? There is no peace for the wicked. The way of the transgressor is hard. It's always hard. Notice verse 13, he says not only that, but they're wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And that is self-explanatory. Judas like, there's just no hope for the unrepentant false teacher and all the damage they have done. Verse 14. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly, among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in their ungodly way and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him, Enoch. Now, all we really know about Enoch is found in Genesis chapter 5 and Hebrews chapter 11, and it's not much. But we learn something else about Enoch here. That is, he prophesied. He prophesied. He spoke forth the word of God. God used him that way. And Jude says what Enoch said is coming to pass just as he prophesied. Now we need to pause here just for a second to explain the book of Enoch. Because there are those today that would say that the book of Enoch belongs in the Bible. They actually call it one of the missing books or one of the excluded books. And you'll hear it from time to time. They say it belongs in the canon of scripture. First of all, let me explain to you the canon of scripture. The word canon just means a measuring line. So when you hear the word canon, it means a measuring line. And the canon of scripture means the collection of books that make up the Bible as we know it today. I would even put it this way. The canon of scripture is the collection of approved books, the 66 six books of the Bible that are in, uh, in the book that you're holding in your lap right now or on your phone. 66 books. The book of Enoch is not one of them. The Old Testament canon was established among the Jews, and the New Testament canon was established by the first couple hundred years in the early church, 
acknowledging that the book had an apostolic origin, that the content of the book was legitimate, that it was recognized by the churches and the leaders, and there was nothing in those books that are contradictory. Enoch is not considered an inspired book of God. It's what they call an apocryphal book. If you're taking notes, let me spell that for you. It's A-P-O-C-R-Y-P-H-A-L, an apocryphal book, or even some put it in the category of a pseudepigraphal book. And these are important things to understand because you'll hear the book of Enoch at work. Somebody will say, hey, I just read the book of Enoch. It's all kinds of crazy things in it. What do you think? And you go, well, you know, that's an apocryphal book. And you can just, you can just drop a nice five, a 10 cent word on them. And it's a pseudepigraphal book. And they go, whoa, hey, you really know what you're talking about. Well, you do. Let me spell that word for you. It's P-S-E-U-D-E-P-I-G-R-A-P-H-A. Hopefully I spelled it right. Pseudepigrapha. Now the apocrypha is a collection of books written in the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. So at the end of the Old Testament, you have Malachi. Then the New Testament opens up with Matthew, John the Baptist coming on the scene. In those 400 years in between those books, God was silent in giving new revelation. He wasn't doing it. He was ready. It, was the, it was for the perfect time for John the Baptist, the final Old Testament prophet, to come on the scene. God, right before the coming of Christ, the eternal Son of God, in the womb of Mary, there was silence. And you know as well as I do, we don't like silence very much. We don't like quietness. When there is quietness, there's always someone to fill the, the gap and say something. As a matter of fact, let me give you a little tip. As you're, as you're in a small group or you have a small group there and you've asked a question and nobody answers and nobody says anything, I'm going to give you a little tip. You ready? You, in your mind, start counting to 10. And to just count very slowly in your mind, one, two. You could even go to 20 if you need to. But I almost guarantee you, within the 10, someone will say something. It's just giving time to draw out, perhaps giving time. Because so, you know, in a small group and you're maybe leading for the first time and you're uncertain, you know, you're not used to silence, just be patient. You don't be impatient. Give some time. Uh, give some time for the Holy Spirit maybe to stir something up. But it's a little trick you can use. Just pause and just wait it out. Just one, two, and just kind of look around, make eye contact with everybody. One, and somebody's going to say something. Because there's always something in the room you're just drawing it out, let it, giving room for the Holy Spirit to do that. So in between Malachi and Matthew, there's 400 years of silence. But there were a lot of books written during that time, a lot of letters, a lot of books written. The word apocrypha literally means hidden. So they we're, are often referred to as hidden. However, the books that are known today in the apocrypha, the, the collection of books that you will find in the middle of the Roman Catholic Bible, and even some of Protestant Bibles, you'll see those books, they're, they're known as the Apocrypha. They're filled with errors, contradictions, and inaccuracies, which on, on their face show that they're not inspired of God, not written by God. Pseudepigrapha now refers, if, if the book of Enoch is considered in that category, then they would refer to books that were written falsely attributed to reliable authors, like somebody wrote them with the intent of deceiving. So Jude, whatever category you want to put that in, Jude says Enoch did say something, 
he did speak forth something. He, he did say, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. He did say, verse 15, to execute judgment of all, to convict all who are ungodly among all their ungodly deeds committed in an ungodly way of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So what do we know about that? What we know is that these words are words that are inspired of God. And you say, well, how do you know that, Ed? Because Jude wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as he writes these words, we know for a 100% fact that what Enoch said here was inspired of God. And that's it. That's all we know. So you don't allow somebody to go, well, you know, I know the book of Enoch and, and, and has all these fanciful things. And, and I know right there, Jude says Enoch was inspired. No, Jude doesn't say that. Jude says that what this says is inspired. It doesn't give approval to everything that's attributed to Enoch. The point Jude is making here is that these false apostate teachers will be judged and they won't get away with it. Not, not only is he speaking about the return of the Lord, but he's also saying, look, this is applicable to the false teachers, the ungodly, those with ungodly deeds, those with an ungodly way, those ungodly sinners that have spoken against him. Hold your places here. Turn over to Psalm 94. Notice this. Notice with me Psalm 94 as we turn back. This, these are, you know, sometimes you have to speak strongly to those that will not listen to rebuke. And that's what Jude is doing here. When someone is not teaching false, they're not teaching true, they're teaching false, they need to be spoken to with the truth. And they're to be admonished. And they're to be admonished a second time. And perhaps even a third time. But as they're divisive, the Bible says we're just to move on. Move on. Don't allow false teaching to continue in your midst. Notice this in Psalm 94, verse 3. Psalm 94, verse 3. Psalmist says, Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? They utter speech and speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. They break in pieces your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. And yet they say, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And we're reminded in Jude here that God will faithfully bring his righteous judgment upon false teachers and ultimately upon all who reject him. But ultimately, remember, at the great white throne judgment, God judges with the books open. Nothing gets past God. He sees it all. And one day, those who have rejected Christ or led others astray will be judged by the Lord. Today on Abounding Grace, we listen to a message from Ed Taylor called, But You Must Remember the Truth. It's part of our study in Jude. To hear it again, visit our website at AboundingGraceRadio.com or listen to Ed through our app. Simply search for Ed Taylor in the App Store or Google Play and download the free app today. We also have a podcast, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. Our pick of the month is Struggling Under the Broom Tree by Pastor Bill Gem. What comes to mind when I mention the prophet Elijah? 
Perhaps you think of a man who walked closely with God and did amazing miracles. Well, that is true. But maybe you didn't realize Elijah, like many of us, struggled with fear, doubt, and even depression. In this book, you'll read about the life of Elijah and how God's faithfulness brought him out from under the broom tree of despair. He can do the same for you. We'll gladly send you a copy of Struggling Under the Broom Tree when you support Abounding Grace today with a gift of $25 or more. Just pick up the phone right now and call 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-30-GRACE. Or go online to calvaryco.store. And we want this radio ministry to be the sort of ministry that God uses. That's our prayer and our heart's desire. And if you'd like to get behind what we're doing and offer a one-time gift or ongoing support, we'd sure appreciate it. You can donate to the ministry at AboundingGraceRadio.com or, again, call 877-30-GRACE. Join us each day on Abounding Grace as Pastor Ed Taylor leads us through God's Word, helping us live by and grow in God's abounding grace. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. 